turn to Romans chapter 3. I told you in chapter 3 that what we begin to see here is the great study on, on the importance of getting God's righteousness and uh, how you go about getting it. And uh, I think now when you get into chapter 3 and you start putting these, these chapters together, uh, you begin to see that the real issue behind the Gentiles' unrighteousness, and remember we talked about that in chapter 1, and then in chapter 2 we got into the Jews' self-righteousness. And I think you can better have an understanding of why we really need, once you understand how that they are so unrighteous and ungodly, why that we need God's righteousness. And in today, and we're going to start in chapter 10, and I want to read down through here, and, and uh, this section, we begin to see uh, another great doctrine come to light. And Romans are just filled with them. And we begin to see, I think, probably one of the key things that we need to understand as God's people today, and it's, uh, it's certainly one, as so many others, that God's people have lost by the wayside in the process of time. But it says this in verse 10, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There was none that understandeth, there was none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of their way, they are all, all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher, with their tongues they have used deceit, the poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that, uh, that the things whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and that all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. Thank you for the Word of God, for its power, for its truth, and for, Lord, uh, the time that we've set aside today to, to learn from your Word. We ask you, Lord, in a very special way to be with us today. Help us to grasp the great concepts and the great truths of your Word. And, Lord, we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, in this section, we begin to see another great doctrine. And it's the doctrine on the depravity of man. And we've learned, if we've learned anything from chapter 1 and chapter 2, it's that whether it's the Jew or the Gentile, we've learned that man uh, is an absolute mess in his relationship with God. You know, there's a couple of things I, I, I want you to remember as we get into this. You know, man in an unsaved state, and I think sometimes we lose sight of this. Uh, a man in an unsaved state is totally alienated from God. You know, we, another great doctrine in the Bible is the doctrine of the holiness of God. And uh, when you contrast the doctrine of the holiness of God from the doctrine of the depravity of man, I, I don't understand how anybody could ever think that uh, you could have a relationship with God aside from uh, through His blood on Calvary's cross. And a man in an unsaved state, Bible says the very best you can do. And I know that we like to put a lot of emphasis on the things that we do even after we're saved. And I'm not saying that after you get saved you shouldn't do some things from God, but I think we lose the perspective of, of who we are in relationship to who God is. 
And I think losing that perspective many times causes us some issues in our life that we have to struggle through and we have to deal with. You realize that an unsaved man is totally alienated from God in every way, shape, or form? You realize that John chapter 9, verse 31 talks about the fact that, that God does not hear an unsaved man's prayers? If a man prays and he's not in a saved state, he's never trusted Christ as his own personal Savior, his prayers of no avail. And God doesn't hear his prayers. I've had people tell me, you know, well, I was unsaved and I, and I prayed this and God answered it. No, you may have prayed it, but God didn't answer it. It was just the happenstance or the circumstances. It could have just as easily went some way out. You know why? Because John chapter 9, verse 31 says, For we know that God heareth not sinners. But if any man be a worshiper of God, him he heareth. The Bible makes it very clear that as an unsaved man, you have no prayer life. Now, God will hear the prayer of a man wanting to be saved. But as, a, as an unsaved man, we have no power with God. We have no relationship with God. You know, as an unsaved man or an unsaved woman, I don't know what issues we have uh, in your life, but many times people will come in and they'll have a problem with alcohol or tobacco or drugs or, or something in life, whatever the case may be. And without Christ in their life, without Christ in their life, they will never, never, never be able to overcome and get out from under what they've got. You know, we, we got a, you know, we, when I deal with alcoholics a lot, you know, over the years, and, and uh, uh, the, the, the world's idea of helping an alcoholic is to put him in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm not saying that Alcoholics Anonymous is not a good thing. I've had people that I've worked with that I have put them into it because of the accountability factor. But I'm not under any idea that joining some club with a bunch of people who have the same problem that you have is going to be the key to fixing your problem. I understand. You see, one of the problems the Alcoholics Anonymous make is they teach their people that you're going to be an alcoholic for the rest of your life. So when you go into their little groups, they'll turn around and say, Hi, my name is so-and-so. I'm a recovering alcoholic. In other words, they still take the position that, that they're still an alcoholic. Because, and I understand why they do it, and I'm certainly not faulting them. Because I understand why they do it. They want to keep in front of you the fact that you're an alcoholic so you don't fall off the truck, see? Now we have one for Narcotics Anonymous, you know, for people that are on drugs. I'm not bashing it. Please don't, um, don't think that. But what I am saying is this. This is the difference between God's plan and man's plan. Man's plan is, is to keep you an alcoholic and keep that before you. God's plan is to tell you that once you get saved, you're free from alcohol. You're not an alcoholic anymore. You're now a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. See, that's the difference between the two. Now, I've used Alcoholics Anonymous. I've used, uh, I've used, uh, I've used uh, Narcotics Anonymous. And, and uh, you know, and there's a bigger one out that's even more successful. Oh, that's called Christians Anonymous. <laughs> that's where people that don't ever witness go. They have little club meetings, you know. And, and, and I think they're good. But the bottom line is, apart from you getting saved, and I hope today that wherever you're at, you understand your perspective a little bit better today. That's all I really want to accomplish. This is like an introduction to this doctrine of the depravity of man. But man in an unsafe state is totally God's enemy. And, uh, you know, somebody, I heard a guy say one time years ago, he said, you know, the Bible, we were, they were talking about the Bible, and he said, the Bible is a record of man's search for God. And I thought to myself, boy, that's, that's a very Platonic concept. Platonic and far from coming from the Greek philosopher Plato. 
man's search for God. Let me tell you something. You couldn't find God as an unsaved man or a saved man if your life depended on it. When Adam sinned in the garden, he wasn't looking for God. God went looking for him. When God came to Abraham, Abraham didn't come to God. God came to Abraham. Apart from God coming down and allowing you and I and touching you, as the Bible says, he's the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world, there's absolutely no way. The Bible's not, a, Bible's not a record of man's search for God. The Bible's a record of God's search for man. The Bible says he's the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Somebody says, well, I'm going I'm to go find God. Well, you'll never find God because God's are, it's obvious. Somebody says, well, I'm going to go find God. Hey, the real issue is God's already found you. He just doesn't like what he found. So you want to pretend this game that you're on this search, you see? Bible straightens all that out. You don't have to search for God. The moment, you're, the moment you were born, the Holy Spirit of God noted your name down on the big clipboard up in heaven. And the moment you came to the age of accountability, the Holy Spirit of God began to knock on your door. And when you got saved and you trusted Christ as your own personal Savior, from that point on, God gave you a book that shows you exactly how to have a relationship with Him and how that you can build it. And none of it has to do with you seeking God. The Bible says the Son of Man is coming to seek and to save that which was lost. He'll find you. The question is, you don't want him to find you because you have your own agenda. So you get into this, you get into this philosophical idea that, oh, I'm on my search for God. No, God found you the day you got saved. There's no other search involved. It's the fact that many times we don't want to, we don't want to, we don't want to approach God. You see, man's approach to God has always been bring God down to man's level. God's approach is he wants to bring man up to his level. Amen. But there's a process by which he does that. And uh, now to be saved, even to get saved, and then afterwards the idea of having fellowship with God. I mean, uh, uh, God has to do something. He has, to, he has to get over some things. One of the things that he has to get around is your and my depravity. Because God is holy. And God is absolutely has a standard of holiness that he will not, he will not set aside so he can have a relationship with you. And we think, that, we think that God, you know, how many times that I've told you this, that we think that God loves the sinner uh, but hates the sin. That's not true. God hates the sinner and the sin because God is holy. And God cannot stay in the presence nor be around anything that's not holy. Now, here comes another great doctrine. In the Bible, this is called the doctrine of propitiation. This is called the doctrine of the advocacy of Jesus Christ. Somebody says, well, and I know, I know, I know, people get up and they say, well, God loves the sinner, uh, but he hates the sin. You know who said that? It's not in the Bible, by the way. Gandhi said that. That was Gandhi's philosophical approach. And, of course, the God he was talking about didn't even remotely uh, line up with the God that I'm talking about this morning. But God doesn't love the sinner and hate, uh, you know, and hate sin. God, God hates the sinner and he hates the sin. You say, well, if that's the case, Bible says if you're saved here this morning, that, that you're as good as in hell already with a door shut, gate locked, and a key thrown away someplace. The Bible said there's absolutely no way God can even look at you and love you and then for God to allow you to be part of him and to get his righteousness, he had to do something. You know what he did? Maybe this will help you understand it better. He sent down his son and died on the cross. 
You know what? You know what God had to do before he could even love you and look at you and even, even contemplate having any kind of salvation plan for you? He had to look at you through something innocent dying. So when God looks at an unsaved man, he can't stand to look at him. He can't have anything to do with him. But then the factor comes in that God made a way. And the way that he did was that when his son, God himself, came down and died on that cross... And the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? God loves the world, but he hates the sinner. The Bible says of an unsaved man, the wrath of God abideth on him already. No, the only way God could love the world was to have his son to go down and die on the cross. And when he hung on the cross, he took the place and shed the blood for every godless sinner on this planet. So when God looks at you and me before we were saved, he sees us through the blood of his son. The only way you can do it. We have a lot of religions today that once stood for the blood washing of Christ and the redemption of Christ's blood who no longer believe the blood. They look at the blood as a very gory thing and, 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 and can't even, and, can't, and yet at the same time, there's no more precious doctrine in the Bible than the blood of Christ washing away your sin and my sin. And when we start to talk about Romans chapter 3 and we start to look at the depravity of man, you need to understand that the only way God could look at you and me, the only way God could ever make a way that a holy God could ever have any kind of fellowship with an unrighteous person, someone where the Bible says that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. The only way a holy God could have anything to do with an, a filthy, vile sinner like you and I was to look at them through the blood of His Son, and that's the way He made it through. You ever wonder and ever look at it, uh, the book of Romans? The book of Romans shows us exactly how this process works. And I think this is the major theme that comes through the book of Romans, at least in the first part anyhow, that 1 and 2 tells us that the Jew and the Gentiles are totally screwed up. Chapter 3 and 4 uh, begin to show us as the only way that we can ever have a relationship with God is through is through the fact that we have somehow to get God's righteousness. We as sinners have to some way find a way to get the righteousness of God in my sinful life. And God found a way to do that. And that, my friend, is the great process of how you and I, through the blood of Christ, gets the, gets the righteousness of God. You ever wonder why when a person gets saved, you basically always deal with them through the book of Romans? Do you ever stop and think about that? Romans is the bedrock of the doctrine of salvation. In fact, it's such a, it's such a, it's such a uh, thing that's used so many times that in, for hundreds of years that it, it even goes to the fact that even when we talk about it and when you get those little tracks, it talks about the Romans' road to salvation. The book of Romans is the book that, that if anybody is a true soul winner and understands the easiest, and I realize that you always got to accept the rule if somebody wants to make it as complicated, but when God wanted to take the simple plan of salvation, when God wanted to take a simple formula about getting his righteousness, he did it in the bedrock book, Romans, that deals with the foundation and the truth that has to do uh, with salvation in a very simple, basic form. That's why when you win somebody to Christ, you don't do it out of Matthew. Matthew Turnpike won't cut it. You don't do it out of the book of Acts. The Acts Avenue won't get you there. 
You won't go down Luke Street. Luke Street won't get you anywhere. No, no, you got to go down the Romans Road, and Romans is a very basic book that shows you. And what we're in right now, Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 20, is where I start with a person when they get saved. It's where you should start when you got saved. And it starts with Romans chapter 3, uh, verses 10 through 20, which simply says this, there's none to do with good, no, not one. Romans chapter 3 through 10 through 20 is the place you want to start because the first thing you've got to do in bringing somebody to Christ and them getting God's righteousness is to get them to see how much of a sinner they are. Romans chapter 3 verses 10 through 20 is the universal indictment on all mankind. It shows you that there isn't any good thing in any of us. There's nothing you can say, nothing you can think, no good work that you can accomplish that will ever merit God's righteousness. Romans chapter 3 is where you start because it shows that you and I, as a sinner, are hopeless. There's no way. We're without hope, without Christ. There's nothing we can do. It paints the gloomiest, darkest picture of any place I know in the Bible. And it simply says that there is, there is none that do with good. None that do with good. No, not one. It says that there is none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They all have gone out of their way. They in their throat is an open sepulcher. Their tongues have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, I know we live in a time where everybody wants a positive message from the pastor in the Bible, Tell me what's positive about that. You see, before you can ever get positive, you've got to get negative. And you've got to understand when you try to bring someone to Christ, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to get them to see that without Christ, that they haven't got a chance, that they are a sinner, that there's nothing in their life. They have no merit. They have no power. They have nothing that God wants. When I win somebody to Christ, I usually go three places in my Bible, and I keep it very simple. Some people like to impress people and show them how much they know, and that just confuses the issue. Usually you're dealing with someone that is very basic anyhow, and someone doesn't have a lot of, uh, and they're not coming to be impressed, they're coming to get saved. So when I deal with someone, I keep it very simple. And if you're in this room this morning and I've ever won you to Christ, you know what I'm saying is how I did with you. First place I go is Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 20, makes the eternal statement that man has got a problem, and that problem is sin. Now, the next place I go is Romans chapter 6, staying on the Romans road. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. I call this my great pivotal verse. Because Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says this. It says, the wages of sin is death. See, that's in relationship to what we just saw in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 20. The bottom line is this. Based on Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 20, of you and me being a sinner, the wages of that sin is death. Ah, but the little conjunction in the middle of that verse. But, there's your pivotal verse. But, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There it is. You see how simple that makes it? Romans chapter 3 shows you your sin. You show somebody that without God there's no chance, that they're alienated from God. They have nothing that God wants. They have nothing they can do for God. And then you show them the wage of that sin is death, but the gift of God. Ah, now we got all the things in the right verse. The gift of God. See? It's a gift. 
It has to be a gift because based on Romans chapter 10 verses, uh, Romans 3 verses 10 through 20, you know why they can get it. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You don't merit it. You can't work for it. Has to be a gift. Yes, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. You see, that's my pivotal verse. That just brought me dealing with somebody from where they're a sinner, showing them that the wage of that sin and where it's going to get them, and then shows me the next step that I can get something, that there is eternal life. Then I go to Romans chapter 10. This is called the Romans Road. And I know there's different little pieces people go other than this. I'm not saying this is the only way you can do it, but you better do it out of Romans. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says this. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth in him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. See, we covered chapter 1 and chapter 2 there. Uh, for the same Lord is over all, uh, is rich unto all that call upon him. Now here it comes. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now that's all you need. There's two elements you've got to have that's laid out. And I don't know if you caught it coming through or not, but for a man to be saved, he has to have two elements nailed down. One is his head knowledge. The other one is his heart knowledge. Today, I'm ashamed to say that most people that get saved don't only have half of it. Therefore, they probably don't get saved. Most people that get saved today just have a head knowledge. They don't make it in their heart. When I deal with somebody about their eternal destiny, I take very, very, very great pain that, one, they understand that they are a sinner. They understand that there's nothing that they can do and there's no good thing in them and it's only by the grace of God God wants to have a relationship with them. But God had to do something for that to happen. Then I take them to my pivotal verse and I show them, if you stay where you're at in your sins, you're going to split hell wide open. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Well, how do I get there? If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised thee from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That's how you get there. You see, you got to believe it in your heart and you got to understand it in your head. Now, you don't have to understand all the eternal degrees of salvation. I'm not saying that. I signed it. Most people, you know, uh, most people when they get saved, they don't understand about the tribulation. They don't understand about the millennium. They're not exposed to. But I'll tell you what God does give you grace to understand. He will give you grace to understand that, one, you are a sinner. And, two, you need to be saved. He'll give you enough spiritual insight, even as an unsaved man, through the blood of Christ, to see that, that Christ's sacrifice was the way. And so when I deal with somebody on that basis, I basically say, hey, look, it takes two aspects. You've got to believe it in your heart, and you've got to have it in your head. You've got to confess it with your mouth. And I'll take somebody down to that point, and I'll say, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that you're a sinner? You believe there's nothing good in you? Yes, I do. You believe that the wages of your sinful life is going to be death, and that death there is not dying and not being put in the ground. That death there is spiritual separation from God for all of eternity. That's going to hell. Yes, I believe that. Do you also believe that God made a way, that even though that the wages of sin is death, God, God has a gift for you if you'll take it, and that gift is salvation, eternal life, getting God right. Yes, I do. All right, let me show you how to get it. You believe in your heart. You believe you're a sinner? Yes. 
You believe you deserve to go to hell? Yes. You believe that God is going to send you to hell? Yes. You believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and on that cross he paid your price in hell and you believe that he'll offer you the gift today if you ask him? Yes. Okay, kid, you got it in your heart. Now, we're going to exercise what you got in your head. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, ask him to save you. Now, when you get to this point, you can do it a couple of different ways. I don't know how you can, some people are afraid they'll pray the wrong prayer. I don't know how you can pray the wrong prayer. One of the best prayers I ever had of a man that I know, I want a lot of people to Christ, and I think most of them probably got saved, but I know one of absolutely sure did. And yet, if, if, if the average pastor would have been dealing with this guy, he'd have had a heart attack. One time I dealt with the roughest old guy you ever saw in your life. And I mean, this guy, uh, I don't know where he come from or what he was doing in his life, but boy, I'll tell you what. He was the vilest, most unbelievable person I ever met in my life. And God began to do some things in his life, and I, I got the opportunity at one point to win him to Christ. And I got to confess, you know, it even shocked me. And, I, and when I get to this point, I always say to the guy, I say, now we can do this one or two ways. Because most people maybe don't know what to pray. So, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't, want, to, you don't want to feel bad about stumbling around. Some people don't have a problem with it. I tell them this. If you feel good enough to ask God and you know how to do it, then audibly, openly, so I can be a witness to it, just ask God to come in your heart and save you right now the best way you know how. Now, if you can't do that, then I'll lead you in a prayer. But when I lead you in this prayer, all I'm doing is helping you. You're not praying it to me. You're not asking me, and I make it very clear. Well, this old boy, I got into that point, and I said, now, I'll help you with this. He said, no, I know how to, I need to ask God. That was my first mistake, see. I said, go ahead. So we bowed our head and put my arm around him, and he says, he says, dear God, he says, I'm a goddamn sinner. <laughs> now, I had that reaction for just a split second. Now, most pastors at that point, you know what they do? Hold, time out, whoa, whoa. You can't cuss like that when you're asking God to save you, see? Now, that was my first reaction. But it meant about in a millisecond, I thought to myself, that's probably the truest confession I've ever heard a man make in my life because he is a goddamn sinner, see? See, we use it as a cuss word so much, we become so associated with it in the wrong way, we lose sensitivity when a guy uses it in the right way. And I said, thought to myself, pray on. <laughs> you got it. You see how desensitized we become to things? We hear God's name used in vain by people out there all the way around, and we just we get so, and, and I don't like it either, but it, there was a case where the guy was right on the money. No sham, no phoniness, no little folding of his fingers. He just laid it on the table. This is what I am. I need to be saved. You said you'd save me. Please save me. Honesty always works when it comes with God. Now, that's the Romans road. That's God's simple plan of salvation that is made possible that we as unsaved men and women who are vile, who are filthy, who are absolutely ungodly, could be reconciled to a holy God through the blood of Christ. And there's no other way to get there. John 14, 6 said, Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man coming on the Father of the way. You have to go through him. 
Once you get saved, I try to get you to understand, and this is what we try to do. When somebody comes in and, and uh, uh, we got some issues we got to deal with in our life, 99% of the time, what they've got to do is get to see themselves as God sees them. Many times people come in and the world beat them up. Many times they beat themselves up. Many times they're beat up emotionally, physically, sometimes. They're beat, beat up spiritually. They've been in bad relationships and been abused, maybe not physically sometimes, yes, but certainly emotionally. And they come to the place in their life when they come in, I mean, uh, they may be walking five foot five or seven foot six or six foot five, but in reality, they're only about an inch off the ground. Now, how do you deal with that? How do you get somebody that comes in, saved or lost? If they're lost, you've got to show them that the way that they can get out of the problems they're in is to get saved. If they're already saved, you've got to come to the point where you get them to see themselves as they really are. And that, my friend, is a critical balance in all of our lives as Christians. The reality of who I am, but the reality of who I am in Christ. That's why... Many times you'll find that, uh, and some of you have probably been through this. So a couple of years ago, I did a series that I didn't know was going to develop into the, what it did. But I taught you uh, a thing called the seven things that changed about you the day you got saved. And I went through and showed you that the seven things, the moment you got saved, seven things are now different about you than were before the moment you got saved. And for you to have the confidence that you need to have as a Christian, and to be what God wants you to be, you have to understand those seven things that changed about you the day that you got saved. If you don't grasp it, if you don't get it, your emotions or the devil or somebody will manipulate you and push your buttons and drive you nuts, and it'll be everybody except the one that needs to push your buttons, and that's God. We all let things, people, influences drive us emotionally drive us and push us. And the sad character of that is the fact that the only one that should do that after we're saved is the Holy Spirit of God. We just finished the book of Ruth. Four little chapters, wasn't it? But I'll tell you something, I've never seen the impact of a book. And for those of you that don't know, we're coming through about every two months of one book of the Bible, completely ripping it apart, detailing it out, laying it all out. And I guess I could honestly say, for those of you that were part of this one, you realize now what Ruth is. A little book that just laid everybody bare. A little book that shows you that you, you, you have to have four aspects of understanding in your relationship with God. I, I, a book, and, and most of you, I don't think any time we taught it, it was a dry eye in the place. You only had to go through it once. I had to teach it three times. Kick me six ways from Sunday. Because it showed me this balance. It showed me that, that, that if I'm going to have the proper relationship with God that I want to have, if I'm going to have that intimacy with Him in understanding uh, and have that balance in my life, then I have to see, and I showed you how each chapter, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, each chapter focused on another aspect of me and God. It wasn't like a book that brings you through like the life of Abraham and shows you thing by thing by thing and how it unfolds. No, no. It was four complete different concepts that showed about me and my relationship with God. I showed you chapter 1 and how God saw you before you were saved. What a, what a powerful concept. I showed you in chapter 2 that even though God saw you and you still were unsaved, how God came and found you. Then I showed you how God called you. 
Then I showed you in chapter 4 how God redeemed you. You know what that book does? I told you many, many times. In fact, I told you in that lesson study. That, that what you do in the Bible and understanding the Bible is you realize that all the, in the Old Testament it's all made up of stories. You got story after story after story after story in the Old Testament. When you get to the New Testament from Acts, maybe Acts 19 on, there's no more stories. It's all principles. What you need to learn to do as a child of God is line the stories up with the New Testament principles to get the full weight of what's being done. If you want to understand your relationship with Christ and you want to have a, a balance in your life that you understand how you got God's righteousness, then you take the New Testament principles in the New Testament and go back to take the story of Ruth chapter 1 and find out how God saw you when you were, when you were unlovable. Then you find out how God, even when you were unlovable, how he found you, what he saw inside. The reason what he saw in you that he didn't see in somebody else, why you got saved and somebody else didn't. All in Ruth. How God called you. And finally, he takes the concept that shows you the inside of how God redeemed me, me getting God's righteousness, someone who never deserved it, never could deserve it, never would deserve it. I showed you about five areas of our relationship with Christ in, as you come through there. You talk about proper washing. You talk about proper anointing. Talk about proper arraignment. These are all things Ruth did when she went to go be with Boaz. Proper position. But I think the most important one was proper perspective. Because in that great book there around chapter 3 and 4, or chapter 3, uh, uh, he says to her the same thing that God said to Jacob. He asked, who are you? She says, I'm Ruth. You know who Ruth was, don't you? She was a Moabite. A Moabite was the enemy of God. A Moabite was a race of people that came out of the ancestral relationship with Lot and his daughters in a cave back there in Genesis chapter 19. Who are you? You got to know, first of all, who you are. Who am I? I'm a sinner. I'm rotten. I'm vile. The depravity of God didn't stop in my life the day I got saved. I still struggle with things in my life. I still go through the thing. You see, before I was saved, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when I talked about spiritual circumcision, the process by which that God separates your flesh from your soul, how God can then, after you get saved, by looking through the blood of Christ, He seals part of you, then then He fellowships because He seals your soul away from the ungodliness of your flesh. But your flesh never changes. I want to say to you this morning on the authority of the Word of God, when you got saved, your soul got saved, your flesh didn't. You are still the same old vile person in your flesh as you were before you got saved. When you go to heaven, your soul's going. Your flesh isn't going. Your flesh reaps corruption. It was born in corruption, and it's going to reap corruption. And when you die right now, if you would, your soul would go gloriously to be with the Lord. They'd put your body down in a, in a, in a morgue over here. They'd shoot you full of formaldehyde. they try to keep this thing from rotting so people could look at you one more time. And they're going to put you down the ground. And 10 years from now, you're worm food. Pick you up, open you up, and my, what a mess. You know why? Because that's what we are, just a gobbly goop of worm food. Most people can't grasp that. They certainly don't like that. Who likes to be told they're worm food? 
I mean, you look, go through the TV, you know, and the Miss America pageant, you know, and, 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 and all the things out there, you know, and everybody likes to have the half-nude poachers of all the girls up. I mean, I can just see, as Bert used to sing, Bert used to sing when she walks around, here she comes, Miss America. I always wish as she straddled across that stage, he'd just sing, here she comes, Miss Maggot Food. <laughs> see, that's the difference between God's perspective on things and our perspective on things. You see, what you love about this world, the worms are going to eat. What you, I love about this world is what's eternal. Amen. I told you, when you got spiritually circumcised, it, it separated you out. It, it put you apart. It made you a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away. All things become new. Now you have the ability to have a relationship with God. But oh my friend, you still have the old flesh to deal with. And Romans chapter 7 says in verse 18, In my flesh dwelleth no good thing. You know, you want the simple aspect of it? When you got saved, I told you before, before you got saved, you were stuck to your flesh. This flesh is dead. It's like being, being, it's, it's like having a, being, being in a dead person. It stinks. It smells. It, it's absolutely worthless. It complains. It whimpers. It, it gets its feelings hurt. When you got saved, God separated you from that flesh. Where before you were saved, you were stuck to a dead corpse. After you're saved, you might be set free from being to it, but you're still stuck with it. Now i got to walk him around. I don't like you. Hey, fall down. I don't care. You're not stuck to it anymore, but bless God, we're still stuck with it. It's going to be the number one, and it, nothing changed about your flesh. That's why I'm talking about perspective. you got to see yourself in two lights. To understand this concept. you got to see yourself as the, as the flesh. As vile and filthy. And against everything that God is. And then you got to understand who you are in Christ. But the perspective, my friend, is the core value uh, that you have to have of yourself. Not forgetting who I really am and where I came from. I don't know about you. One of my favorite passages in the Bible. Found in Psalms chapter 40. It simply says this. It's only three verses. It's a great passage to memorize about your perspective. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it in fear and trust in the Lord. You know what? I thank God for what he did in my life. I thank God the fact that he saved me. I thank God he turned me around. But you know what? I don't want to ever forget. I don't dwell on it. I don't go back and enjoy it. But I owe thank God and keep my perspective of the pit where God dug me from. You never forget. It keeps you from being so judgmental with other people. It keeps you from looking at other people and getting so high and mighty because you keep your perspective. Yeah, we're saved. We're going to heaven. But my, what a place God found me. In a miry pit. In a horrible pit, stuck down uh, where I could not move, out of the miry clay. God pulled me up and set my feet upon a rock. Two perspectives we got to have. My Bible is in John chapter 8, verse 40, uh, 44, a great passage. And you all know it. It simply says, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. 
He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there's no truth in him. And when he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and a father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Hey, you and I, before we were saved, your family name was Devil. Instead of Mr. and Mrs. Alexander, it was Mr. and Mrs. Devil. You were born into this world as filthy sinner, and the Bible says, You're of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye shall do. That's why we did what we did. I don't know if you ever noticed this. Look at Romans chapter 3 again. You're of your father the devil, and the lust of your fathers you will do. You know what Romans chapter 3 is? It's an indictment on every unsaved man and woman on planet earth. But look at it closely. This is what, you, what I'm talking about when you get a little spirituality under your belt and you start to learn how to use your Bible and you start to see something, you start to follow through with it. Look at verse 10, 11, and 12. Remember I just told you in John 8, 44, you of your father the devil and the lust of your fathers you will do. Watch this. John, verse chapter 10, 11, and 12. You know what that is? You say, yeah, it's Romans 3, 10, 11, and 12. You know, it's a quotation from Psalm 14, 1 through 3 and Psalm 53, 1 through 3. Look at verse 13. That's quotation from Psalms 5, 9. Look at verse 14. That's Psalms 10, 7. Look at verses 15, 16, and 17. That's Isaiah 59, 7 through 8. Look at verse 18. That's Psalm 36, 11. You know, all those passages in Romans 3 are quote from the Old Testament, and every one of them, when you go back to the Old Testament passage, is talking about the man of sin, the devil. He takes the, when he wants to describe you and me, before we were saved, he goes, he says, ye are of your father the devil, and in Romans chapter 3, when he wants to talk about the depravity of man, he goes back to the Old Testament and handpicks the verses that tell you about the man of sin, the devil, and then puts him in chapter 3 to say, that's what we are. We're of our father the devil. Now, I want to tell you something. After salvation, you have the power to change that flesh. Where before you got saved, you didn't. An unsaved man, unsaved woman does not have the power to change one thing in their life. They may think they do. But at the end of the day, I've known, I, I've known alcoholics that uh, I known alcoholics that were in Alcoholics Anonymous for 35, 40 years, hadn't drank in 35 years because the program helped them. And they would say to their people when they go to those meetings, I'm a recovering alcoholic, but I've been free from alcohol for 35 years. And everybody would apply. And when he died and he went straight to hell, what was the point? Did he change anything? He didn't change anything. Hey, taking changes in your life that don't affect your eternal destiny is absolutely worthless as an unsaved person. Cleaning yourself up so you look good, so when you go to hell you go in a three-piece suit rather than pair of underwear, it doesn't really accomplish much. The flames burn the clothes off so fast that those clothes, if it's a $500 suit, a $10,000 suit, it's filthy rags in the eyes of God. But after salvation, it's all different, you see. You have the power now. You have the ability to change that flesh. You have the ability to do what you could not do before. You know, I've been in the ministry almost 40 years. And I've only found one thing a saved person can't do that an unsaved person can do. As a saved person, you can do everything a lost person can do except one thing, and that's go to hell. But I'm telling you, in 40 years of my ministry, 
I have unsaved, unsaved people and unsaved people do the exact same things. And this idea that once I get saved, you know, unless you understand the concept between your flesh and your new man and you understand the depravity and your balance you've got to have and your perspective, that's why so many of God's people fall right, even though they're saved and on their way to heaven, fall right into the filth of Romans chapter 3, even after they're saved. What a disgrace that is. You come down through Romans chapter 3. And it talks about the filthy tongue or the filthy lips and the filthy sepulcher, being like a sepulcher. You ever hear an unsaved man talk? You know why an unsaved man uses God damn and Jesus Christ and hell and all those places? You know why? Now, let me show you the philosophy behind that. You know why he does that? Because he is of his father the devil. And the lust of his father he will do. And all that through the whole history of the Bible, the devil has one thing. That is to try to stop and damn the program of God. So his children, you have your father the devil, do the same thing their father does. You know why I don't speak that way anymore? You know why I don't talk that way anymore? You know why the first thing that happened to me when I got saved was I washed my mouth and cleaned it up? I'm not saying I walked out the next day and it was all done. But brother, I made it a process that I didn't fall back into it. You know why? Because I didn't want to talk like an unsaved man anymore. That's why. You know why an unsaved man talks that way? Because that's where he's going. You know what an unsaved man says in hell? God, I'm damned! God, I'm damned! God, I'm damned! Why is thou forsaken me? I thirst! Jesus Christ, get me out of here! That's what an unsaved man says in hell. You know what I say? Praise the Lord! Amen. Praise God! Oh, blessings flow! Somebody came out last night when I got whapped on the leg and he said, I heard you cuss. And I thought to myself, not me, you didn't. I didn't say anything, but if I would have thought about it, I'd have said, bless God, glory to God, I'm going to hop up there and preach tomorrow. Amen. You know why? Because that's what a saved person talks like. What do you get off as a saved person, talking like an unsaved person? What's wrong with you? What's the matter with you? You go out there to the unsaved world, they're supposed to see a difference. You know how they don't see the difference? By what you say, by how you talk. Too many of God's people walk out there and say, well, I go to Old Pass Baptist Church, where I go here, where I'm saved, and then they cuss and talk like a godless pervert. And then they walk around saying, wow, wonder why I don't have the power of God in my life. Because you're an idiot. You're a saved person talking like an unsaved person. What can I tell you? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. He comes down in there and he talks about fornication. Adultery, murder. Oh, I know. No, we would never think about that. No, 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 no. We'll just go in our own privacy of our own room, put it on TV. We'll just watch Sex in the City, and we'll just vicariously experience it without ever doing it. Don't tell me where it's at. We went out to the see the Indiana Jones the other night, and we never got into the thing, and, and I saw her. I didn't tell anybody. I saw her, and I thought to myself, this is the last person I want to talk to. So I just kind of, and she, she saw Barb and she saw the kids. And she ran over there. And she says, oh, she says, she says, are you here to the movies? No, we're in a theater because we were going to buy a car. <laughs> and we thought maybe if we didn't have to buy one, we could just steal one when everybody got, yes, we're going to the movies. <laughs> and, and this woman's a Christian, saved woman, nice gal. And she says, oh, I'm going to see Sex in the City. I can't wait. Are you going to see Sex in the City? I said, no, no. At that point, I, 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 I wanted to say, no, we just 
we're going home. I didn't want anybody to think. And we walked around the corner, and the line was all the way out the door. She says, oh, it's our ladies' night out. Oh, my daughters are coming. I'm thinking to myself, that's what's wrong with Christianity. No, would that woman step out on her husband and commit adultery? Probably not. Would she, would she do? No, she probably would. But you know what we all like to do? We all take our mind places. No, we sit down there and we watch it and we just vicariously experience somebody else doing it. I'm telling you, folks, you wonder why Christianity's got no power in it? It talks about, I looked at the, I looked at the, this, I love, I love every time it comes up to election year. Watching this stuff between Hillary and Obama, I just love it. There's more lying, I, I never, I, people are so stupid. They have, he, she has said, he's terrible, he's rotten, he doesn't do this. He says, she's ugly, she's married to Bill, she does this, and like that. And, and it is backbite and, and, and hatred. And, I mean, you can see, she still has not said, I'm out. She said, I'm suspended. We had a suspender, uh, someplace, never mind, I don't even get into that. I'm, she says, and they, and they, they backbite, and they, they, they lie, and they pick up every piece of dirt, whether it's true or not, and they just keep putting it out, because I want to win. No, you want to win. No, I want to win. And then when she doesn't win, she gets up there and says, I think Barack Obama is one of the finest men I've ever met in my life. And the whole American public is out there saying, oh, yeah, yeah. She lied one place or the other. Either he is or he's in, but he isn't both. But then I look at that and I think to myself, wait till this fall when the Democrats and the Republicans, if they're killing each other in the same party, wait till they get into the fall with the Republicans versus the Democrats. But then I think to myself, what's the point? Churches are the same way. You think there's any real difference between most Baptist churches than the Democrats and the Republican? Well, they cut each other's legs out from under them all the time. They lie about people, they spread rumors about people, they talk about people, they hurt people, they tell people you can't do this or you can't do that or watch this woman or watch that guy, and, they, and it goes on and on. It's no different. That's what the world does, yet that's what we do. The total depravity of man doesn't end when you get saved. You may not be stuck to the flesh anymore, but you're stuck with it. I've never understood this. I don't understand this. You know, the only people in the Bible who breathe in and breathe out smoke are people in hell. The only people in all the history of the world who breathe in smoke and breathe out smoke are people who are in hell where it's burning and they breathe in the smoke and they breathe it out. What in the world is wrong with God's people who are saved and on their way to heaven that want to walk around imitating somebody in hell by how they talk, where they dress, what they do, where they go, and then to top it off by what they breathe in and exhale that only a man in hell does. Amen, Brother Bob. Amen. You won't do it? I'll do it myself. I don't care. The minute I'm getting worried, I'm going to start smelling fingers here. What my mom used to do. But I learned how to wear gloves. 
What's wrong with us? You know what's wrong with us? I'll tell you what's wrong with us. I'll tell you what's wrong with us. We're saved, and we're on our way to heaven, and we've been separated, and we have separated from our flesh, but we want to we wanna let it control us. We still talk like an unsaved person. We still do the things an unsaved person does. We still, in everything on the outward extremities, it's all like, hey, there's no difference for me than the world. That's why you don't win anybody to Christ. That's why you don't have any impact in anybody's life. That's why your kids look at you and laugh. That's why people that you work with don't have any credibility in you. You say you're a Christian, but you talk, you act, you look like the world. Can I tell you? I, I, I know this is hard for God's people today. You know what? If you ever get into ministry, you know what your number one issue is going to be? It's the number one thing I deal with every time I teach, preach, or get anywhere where there's a group of people with a Bible. You know what it is? And it's a constant thing. It's nothing you do. It's what you're up against. Your job as a pastor is to preach a negative message to a world that will not stand negativism, that only wants to be positive. And as a preacher of the Word of God, there ain't too much positive about this world outside of God and the Word of God. That's your problem. Somebody said, well, I'm going to go to another church because he's not very positive. Let me tell you what I'm positive about. I'm positive that we're godless, rotten, and without hope, without God. That's pretty positive, isn't it? I'm positive of that. We like to pretend. Don't ever forget the Laodicean church, the one we live in, cares more about the rights of people than it does the rights of God. I heard a guy on the radio a couple of weeks ago, I was driving in, and he was one of these liberal mismatched guys, Twinkie Pie, fruitcake guys preaching the Bible, and he's up there and he's saying, I just don't understand. I just don't understand how anybody could think a loving God could ever stand the concept of putting a man into a place like some of these people say, burning in hell. Wrong perspective. You know what my perspective is? I don't understand how God could ever take anybody to heaven. I don't have a problem with the hell concept. We all deserve that. The doctrine of depravity man demands that. My problem is, how in the world could a holy God want anything to do with a person like me? Through the blood of Christ. You can't ever forget the depravity of man. You can't ever forget that even though you and I are now saved, you and I have to struggle every day with the flesh that we have. Oh, I'm not stuck to it anymore. Bless God, I'm still stuck with it. And the only way you can overcome it is to begin to take the principles of the Word of God. Learn the Bible. Get everything you can. Get everything in there and change and see who you really are. Yes, you still are a sinner. Never lose that perspective. But you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. Oh, Harry Ironside one time, he was a great preacher. He told a story one time, and it's so true. Oh, it's so true. He preached on the street. And he had a rough day. People throwing eggs at him, tomatoes, bricks, People driving by and cussing him out and threatening him. One guy pulled a knife on him, you know. So he goes home that afternoon after preaching out there about getting himself killed. And he's thanking the Lord for protecting him. And he said, you know what, in that split second, I looked up in the mirror and I saw myself. And I said to myself, you know what? There's not many men that would do what I did today for you, God. And he said, at that moment, everything that I did do for God just went out the window. 
Let me tell you something. Even when we do manage to do something right for God, this old flesh steps in and robs God of the glory and we take it and put it on ourselves. Oh, look at me. Look at me. Look what I did. Oh, it is. We are more concerned about what the person sitting next to you think about what you are than what God does. That's our biggest problem. That's our biggest problem. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the look at me Christians. Oh, yeah, look at me. Look at what I can do. Then you got the other side. You don't win either way. You don't win. Your flesh is going to give you problems one way or the other. You get the people out there that say, walk around and you do things to be seen like Martha. She's over there working busily and she keeps looking around the corner. Anybody? Anybody see? Hey, see what I'm doing over here? Oh, Martha. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Look at this. Oh, look at this. Yeah. Yeah. Look at me. I got all this done. Oh, oh, Martha. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Mary, she did down. She got the proper position. She did down in his feet. Got a lot of Christians like Martha. They do things to be seen. Then you got the other side of Christians that they, they see that and they say, oh, yeah, yes, yeah, well. And they become, they look at that and they see it and they become, you know, they become self-righteous. They say, well, I wouldn't do that. Boy, not me. Boy, I got a real relationship with God. Oh, I wouldn't do that. You know what? You're both wrong and you both robbed God of the glory. You just did it by two different avenues. Being a Christian is a tough thing, folks. It's a balance. It's a balance. That old flesh you got after salvation will rob God, cheat God, lie to God, deny God in a New York second, man. It'll take, it'll, God will use you and me to do something, and boy, you'll just throw it all away because you stand up there and say or think to yourself, wow, look what I did. Tough. It's tough. We take God's glory and things all the time. Old Methodist preacher, old Methodist bishop one time named Bradley said, I've never forgotten this quote. He says, when I pray, I sin. When I preach, I sin. My very repentance needs repented of. And my tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of Christ. Now that's it, brother. That's where we're at. There ain't nothing good that we do. You've got to keep that perspective. You've always got to see yourself who it is. Now, if you don't get the right perspective, you see how it gets out of balance, you'll walk out of here saying, well, Bob said I'm no good, so I guess I'm no good. I guess there's nobody done. That's not what I'm saying. You need to understand who you are in Christ Jesus and never forget the pit from where he dug you. Amen. You know what helps you to forgive people? You know what helps you to deal with people and love people who sometimes are very unlovable? You know what helps you get that? It's just remembering where you look like the day God found you. I know preachers that they won't let a certain group of people come into their church. Don't dress right. Don't give enough. Don't do this. Don't do that. You know what they've forgotten? Oh, they're big time now. They wouldn't spend 15 minutes talking with somebody. No, but they'll talk to Joe and Joe over here who's going to bring you down on his yacht down Lake of the Ozarks next week, going to go down there. Oh, yeah, so-and-so is going to drop a big bunch of money on a new building project. That's who I'll spend time with. But, oh, the little guy out there that just struggles every day. No, 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 I don't. You know what the problem is? They forgot where they were and what they looked like when God. Hey, the first time God, God saw you, you weren't driving a Cadillac. You weren't driving with a three-piece suit. You went up there and had all the things you wanted. First time God saw you, you were as wretched and vile as you could ever be. And the truth of the matter is, you still are. You just think because you've got more money now. You've got bigger cars. You've got a big house. Everybody cuts your grass, changes your light bulb, fixes your sewer, pushes your busted toilet. That you're somebody. 
Ain't nobody. None of us are. You get to that point in your life that you think you've arrived and you think you don't have to do this or you don't have to do that. Just look back and remember. That's what I'm talking about, perspective. Just look back and remember the first time God lays eye on you, what me and you must have looked like. Hard for me, it's hard for me, if not impossible for me, to hate anybody. There's people maybe I don't care for, people I don't like, people I don't want to be around, but there's nobody in the world that I can think of at this point in my life or any maybe in the last since I've been saved that I actually say I hate that person. You know why? How can I as a Christian hate somebody when I was the vilest thing when God saw me and in spite of that, God stubbed and loved me enough to send his son so he could look through his blood to get me in. Now how do I, how do I hate somebody, deny somebody, not talk to somebody, not be nice to somebody, even if I don't like them. Because God was nice to me, even when he didn't like me. When I was yet without strength, when I was yet in my sins, Christ died for the ungodly. That's our flesh, after salvation. You know, the answer to it's real simple. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 is probably one of those great verses in the book of Galatians that you all ought to memorize. It's a great verse. And it really tells you the answer to our predicament this morning because this is an introduction to the depravity of man. And there's no use going into the doctrine of depravity of man and have you thinking I'm talking about anybody other than us. <laughs> you see, when we get into chapter 1, I can make it the Gentiles and we all feel good. When we get into chapter 2, I can make it the Jews and we still feel good. But when we get into chapter 3, it's us, folks. This depravity of man, it isn't some funny out here, we're going to make a figment of our imagination. Oh, yeah, them. It's everybody in this room. Everybody. Now, how did you get God's righteousness? You got God's righteousness because God sent his son down and put him on a cross. And on that cross, he was crucified. And most people think that the crucifixion is something that, uh, you know, that took place one time in history. And for your sin and for my sin, it did. 2,000 some years ago on Golgotha's Hill, the Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life on the cross that God might have the wherewithal to look through his blood and to allow you and me into his fellowship and in time into his presence when we accepted that sacrifice that eradicated our sin. And then God fixed it, that he separated us out. He sealed us. He sealed the part of me that's spiritually eternal. He left the old part of me down here that's going to go back to the worms. But my life is now, my battle, my struggle, your battle, your struggle is the back and forth with that. You know what? You take two people, put them on a chair. Make one the old nature, one the new nature. Give them name tags. For the next year, we feed this one over here and take care of him, give him everything he needs, take care of him, feed him, give him the best food and everything over here. This one here, we do nothing. We give him nothing. You know what happens? It won't even take a year. In three months, this guy will be fine, this guy will be dead. You know what? It all depends on which one you're going to feed, ladies and gentlemen. You're either going to feed the old nature or the new nature. You feed the new nature, and in time, the old nature will die out. Oh, it'll be there, and it'll always raise its ugly head, but you'll control it. It won't control you. That's the problem we have right now. Our flesh is controlling us. Yeah, you're saved. You're on your way to heaven. But the depravity of man is understanding the fact that there are two concepts of this. Here's the perspective. You have got, well, if your flesh is controlling you, you've got to deal with whatever it is that's controlling you and get it out of your life. How do you do that? Well, one of the ways you do it is by feeding the new man, not the old man. That's why every time I have somebody come in, I say, you know what? 
be at Thursday night Bible study. I'll put some people working with you. Be on Sunday morning. Come out and play softball. Well, I don't play softball. I don't care whether you play softball or not. You know what? It's better that you're with God's people who love God where the Holy Spirit is that you're out running around someplace where you're going to get into trouble. You know what? That's the thing. You've got to change your lifestyle. You've got to change the way you look at it. You've got to change the places you go. You've got to change the way you think. And you can't do that on your own. Your flesh has still got control. But you can break it if you feed the new man and starve out the old man. Now, how you got God's righteousness was you got, he got crucified for you. Now, how do you keep that? You crucify yourself. Look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, and we'll explain it. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And a life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if, the unright- for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in, uh, dead in vain. You see that thing? Look at verse 21. That's what you and I do all the time. I guarantee you, the biggest part of my day is found in the last part of that verse. And I know it's true of you because it's true of you, me. And you're no better than I am, and I'm no better than you. You know what we do most of our day? We just go around frustrating the grace of God. You know what that means? That means God saved you to do something through you, and you keep screwing it up because you just won't get out of the flesh and get in the spirit, and the grace of God is frustrated because it wants to do something, and you keep frustrating God's plan. No wonder you got emotional issues. No wonder you got physical issues. No wonder you got all the problems you've got. You've grieved the Holy Spirit for so long, and now he wants to... You, you, most of you people, I liken to you like this. You're in jail. You're in jail for something that you didn't necessarily do, but the circumstances put you in jail. You know what I want to do? I want to come bust you out. I can't use a key because your flesh has got the key all locked up. All I can do is break out the back window, hook it up to my car, pull out the back bars, and get you out. And then you know what happens when I bust you out of jail? We're on the run for the rest of our lives. It's a tough job. We can't ever go back. Can't ever do the old friends. They'll all squeal on us. The only thing we can do after we bust you out of jail is stay on the run. Just keep running. Can't go back to your old home. They'll get you there. You can't go do this. Can't go do that. Can't go back to your old friend. They'll tell you. and They'll come pick you up again. No, no. I busted you out. We got to stay on the run. We keep going. Just keep running. And in that, you'll never frustrate the grace of God again in your life. You keep running from it. You know what, know what Paul told Timothy? He said, flee youthful lust. You know what Joseph did with Paul and his wife? He ran. When I bust you out of jail, don't stick around and say, boy, that was a mighty job. I think I'll just wait here and get breakfast and then I'll leave. <laughs> no. When I broke down the back walls, get out. And that's, we're on the run. Now we're going, and everybody's going to put you back in that jail again. Frustrating the grace of God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Christ, but not, but not, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. See, it's not you. It's Christ living in you. And the life, look what it says. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved and died for me. Every day, you've got to crucify yourself. Every day, you start out saying, God, I'm set free. I'm not part of this. I'm, gonna, I'm on the run. I ain't going back. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to think about it. I'm going to take out the thoughts that I want to think, and I'm going to put the principles of the Word of God in, and I'm going to... That's why so many of you, when we started working with you, <coughs> gave you those little three-by-five cards. Those were, your, those were your hacksaw blades. Get you out of jail. Keep you out. Every time you struggled with something, you took out that card, you replaced the thought in your mind that was no good with the principle of God that was good. That's how it works. 
you got to crucify yourself every day. The flesh is a prison. It wants to hold you in its bars and never let you to go. I can bust you out, but you got to stay on the run. Can't ever come back. Hey, you know what? I look at this thing from a, a pragmatic standpoint. I'm not sure what pragmatic means, but I heard a guy use it the other day. It really proud and impressive. I understand why the Roman Catholic monks back in the dark ages and even today, I understand why they did what they did. I mean, it was wrong, but I understand it. I understand the concept of a monastery. I understand the concept of being a monk, locking yourself up and staying completely isolated from the world so you can get closer to God. I understand that concept. Now, it's the wrong concept, and it won't work. But I understand why men get that mindset that if I can lock myself away from the world, being in a place where I don't ever see the outside, all I see is four grave walls. They even, some of them went so far that they took a vial of silence that because they knew Romans 3 said that their speech was contemptible, they never spoke. Some of them went into that monastery when they were 20 years old, died when they were 80, and never spoke a word in all those years. You know why? Because they were trying to get closer to God. They isolated themselves. They took a silence vial that they wouldn't speak so they wouldn't corrupt God, and they just walk around all day long looking at things and going through things and and doing things so they can get closer to God, so they can find God as the term is today. Now, the problem with that is real simple. Because it's it's not you locking yourself away or the world that's the problem. It's your flesh is the problem. We have churches that, and, I, you know, and you know how my standard is on it. I believe the woman had to dress modestly. I mean, I do. I've seen women that went to church, and, you know, it was immodest as far as I'm concerned. I don't ever say anything, but that's just, I think a woman, I think a woman, when she dresses in the morning to go to church, wherever she goes, if she dresses to please the Lord, whatever she has done is going to be right. If she's dressing to please somebody else, then, well, then you're going to have some issues. But that's not my deal. But there are churches out there that want to that take control of that. So they say that the woman can't wear slacks. You know, and it's a, you know, and, and they try to get around human nature. You can't get around human nature. You, if I would say to you ladies, and I, I'd rather preach at your heart, and the guys too, and I would rather tell you and preach at you with your heart and say, you know what, when you come to church this morning or wherever we go, you dress to please God, and that, then I don't have to worry about it. But I can't legislate to you your spirituality. If I put a big sign up here, all right, next, next, next week, all the women have to wear dresses so we can be godly. You know what? Some of you ladies would go out and you'd buy one so tight it looked like a skin diver suit. <laughs> so then I got to put it underneath that and they got to be dresses and they got to be loose. So then the next week, you got one and somebody shows up it's so thin a mosquito can fly through without breaking his wings. So then you got to get up here. All women have to wear dresses and they have to be loose and now they have to be <laughs> thick. <laughs> See how stupid it is? Hey, let me tell you something. If I put up here, all women next week have to wear suits of armor so no man will lust. And all the men are thinking, boy, I got the greatest can opener in the world right here. (laughs) It isn't about that, folks. It's about what's in here. It's about what's real in here. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. And I'm telling you, it isn't the, pro- the problem isn't the world. The problem is your flesh. Locking yourself up in a cave doesn't fix that problem. 
The key, of one, the key is not one of isolation. The key is one of insulation. Getting it in your life where it insulates you from the things out there in the world because you love God more than you love anything that's out there. You don't talk like Him. You don't, you don't drink like Him. You don't smoke like Him. You, don't, you, you, you do everything that God does. You put the unsaved man aside. And in pretty sign, you know what will happen? Honest to God, this will happen. You know what will happen? If you'll just start, stop talking like the world, stop acting like the world, stop being like the world, you know what will happen? It will happen just like that. Suddenly, you'll stop thinking like the world. You'll start thinking like Him. That's the key. It's what I'm after. I'm not after your wallet. I'm not after your, I'm after your heart. I'm after your heart. Because that's what it takes to have the right kind of relationship with God. Perspective. The depravity of man. Understanding how God sees us as sinners. But at the same time, I understand that Christ sees me in Christ. And my struggle in the flesh between the two. Balancing it out. Keeping my perspective. The fact that I never forget where I've dug from and how filthy this flesh is never lets me. You know, I meet people a lot of time and they say, well, I've been burned by a lot of people. A lot of, and I've had people say, well, I like your church, but I just got to take a little time because I've been burned by so many pastors. And you know what? I just don't sure I trust any pastors or anybody. And I understand that. I really do. And I don't ever ask you to trust me. I'll just say, let me earn my trust. If I don't, then I don't. I understand that. But let me just put something in the mix for you here. Because I know people I meet all the time, and people hurt you. People burn you. People do things that are wrong to you. And you know what? After a while, you get a tendency that you don't trust anybody. And I understand that. And I find, you know, you'll find in time that that's basically not true. There's a lot of people out there that love you. But let me tell you one person in your life that I guarantee you you can't ever trust. It's yourself. It's you. If there's one person in my life I know I can't trust, I know I can't trust Bob Alexander faster as far as I can throw him. That's why i got to crucify myself every day. You have to crucify yourself every day. You have to come to that point in your life where you realize that... Uh, that uh, and that's why I, I look at things, you know, Romans 13, 14 says, put on, but put you on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. That's why I'm saying whatever you eat, whatever you feed, the new man or the old man is going to run you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'm done, verse 28, 29. And I love this verse. This is how God always does it. That passage says, I'm going to paraphrase it, but it says this. It says that God takes the little things that confound the wise, the things that are not, that confound the mighty. David took a little guy named, or God took a little guy named David, a little guy of no report, no, no nothing, to whip the big guy, Goliath. God will always take the little things. God will always take the base things, the little things that seemingly don't mean nothing to whip the things and the mighty. You know why he does that? The answer is in verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. That's what it is, folks. So you see, when we get into Romans chapter 3, we now entered into the great doctrine on the depravity of man. Before we got into this chapter, we need to see in this detail, this is talking about us. If you want to get the victory in your life over the things that we struggle with and you struggle with, I'm going to tell you how to do it. First of all, understand who you are and never underestimate your ability to do wrong toward God. I'm telling you what, that old flesh is so, it's like water. It'll seek whatever level. It'll creep in under the tightest door. It'll get in through the smallest crack. And it'll, if it can't get you to go out and out and do something against God that'll ruin your testimony, it'll get you to think the wrong thing, say the wrong thing, or get the wrong attitude. But it's never, 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 never at rest. And the only way you can do it is to crucify it. Crucify it. Every day of your life, 
and then fill your new nature with the principles of the Word of God that you'll never stop it, but you can control it. Every head bowed and every eye closed. The depravity of man.